So we've mentioned before that really um, the whole story of, of the whole rest of Genesis is focusing on the character of Joseph. And if you remember, we talked about how Joseph really shows us two main things. One is the reality that uh, all Scripture points back to Jesus. In the volume of the book, it's written of him, said the psalmist. Um, we, we know that um, also that in that sense, oftentimes Joseph will be a type of Jesus. So we'll see in Joseph things that foreshadow who Jesus is and how he worked and operated. But also we see that in Joseph's life, that truth that we read in the book of Acts, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And that is that there's not a single believer on the planet who doesn't have to go through trials and tribulations. That following Jesus, following after him, means that we're going to go through difficult times. And Joseph's a great example of that. And we've been talking the last few chapters about this theme of reconciliation as we're seeing Joseph's brothers uh, being brought to a place where they will be reconciled with Joseph. You remember that Joseph's brothers had sold Joseph into slavery. They were jealous because he was his father's favorite son. They didn't like the fact that he had had this prophetic dream that they would bow down to him. And so in their anger and their frustration, they sold him into slavery. And they were presuming he was dead. But of course, we know the story. Joseph wasn't dead. God raised him up in Egypt. He became second only to Pharaoh. God had given him, had given Pharaoh some prophetic dreams that he had given Joseph the interpretation to. And they're in the midst of this famine. They had seven years of plenty at where we pick up the story today. They've had two years of famine. And God has used Joseph and not just given the interpretation of the dream, but also in preparing Egypt to gather the grain in the years of plenty so there would be plenty of grain for everyone during the years of famine. And through this whole process, we've seen what God was doing. We talked a couple weeks ago, a few weeks back, about the road to reconciliation and the fact that when God wants to bring us in right, back into right relationship with Him or back into right relationship with each other, there's a process that He takes us through. And then just a couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, this, this idea of when God changes our hearts because God needed to change the hearts of Joseph's brothers before He could bring them back into reconciliation with Joseph. And what does it look like when God begins to change our hearts? Well, here in verses 44, or chapter 44 and 45, we're going to see that reconciliation actually taking place. It's going to not just be something that we're talking about as a theme, but we're going to see it actually take place. Joseph and his brothers are going to be reconciled. They're going to come back together. And I think it's in this section that we get maybe the clearest picture of Joseph as a type of Jesus. As the one who brings reconciliation, the one we need to be reconciled to, and the one who provides for our reconciliation, the one that brings us back into right relationship with God. And so, as we talk through the story, and we're going to go through both chapters, we're going to go kind of fast, so I hope your seatbelts are on and you're, you're ready to take some notes. But as we go through these chapters, we're going to look at basically three things, three things that, or four things, sorry, four things that talk about when reconciliation becomes real, when does it become real? When is reconciliation a fact, a reality? We're going to look at that this morning. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 44, it says, And Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry. 
and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his grain money. And so he did according to the word of, that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and they were not yet afar off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the, the one from whom my Lord drinks the, uh, and uh, with which he indeed practices divination? Now we'll talk about divination at verse 15. You have done evil in so doing. And so he overtook them and he spoke the, to them these same words. Now remember the context. Joseph has invited his brothers into his home. They've gone back uh, with, with the money that was in their sacks before, because Joseph had kind of entrapped them before. So they go back to Egypt with their brother Benjamin. He invites them in. Joseph invites them into his home. They're having uh, this grand meal together. Joseph's letting them party a bit. They're probably getting a bit drunk. They're partying into the night. And so that what happens is, as they're having a, a good old time, he has his steward set him up again. He's going to entrap them again. And he's doing this, Joseph is doing this to test them. He's wanting to put them in a situation where uh, their heart's going to be exposed. What's really happened to them, if there's really been change going on in them, it's going to be shown through this next entrapment. Now we think of this, we think, gosh, it seems kind of harsh or unfair. Is Joseph bitter in doing this? But here's here's the reality. Number one is that Joseph didn't know their hearts. He's not God. He doesn't know what their hearts are. So the test was important to see what was really going on in them. But also, number two, we see that God sometimes does this with us. God will often put us in a testing situation. He will try us on purpose, not because He doesn't know our hearts, but He wants us to see what's in our hearts, what He's done in our hearts, what He's doing in our hearts. In fact, we'll see this later on in the history of God's people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. Moses talks about how God fed Israel fed you in the wilderness with manna, and with your, uh, with, which your fathers did not know. And this is the reason, that He might humble you and that He might test you to do you good in the end. In other words, this was part of God's plan. God, as He's leading His people through the wilderness, He fed them with this manna because they had complained uh, about how are we going to eat, how are we going to survive. He gave them this manna, made sure they had all that they needed, and He did so to test them, to show them what's going on in their hearts. So in a very real way, this is what's going on with Joseph and his brothers. He's testing them so they can see what's actually in their hearts, so he can see what's actually in their hearts. Now in verse 7 it says, And and so they said to him, they said to the steward, the brothers say to Joseph's steward, Why does my Lord say these things? Far be it from us that your servant should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Now you see what's happening. The brothers are completely assured of their own innocence. They didn't put the stuff in their bags. So they are saying, man, we are, we're innocent in this. Now it's interesting because the Proverbs say that all of us do this. It's a common thing for us to do. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs chapter 20, verse 6, that most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can actually find a faithful man? Have you noticed that as you're talking to people about things about God, as you talk to people about God, that people might often say, well, you know, uh, there might be a God, and you know, I've been a good person. Have you noticed how quick we are to do that? Oh, I'm a pretty good person. 
We each want to quickly proclaim our own goodness. That's what these guys are doing now. Now, to be fair to them, they hadn't done this crime, had they? But still, it's amazing how quick we are to go, hey, I'm, a, I'm actually a pretty good person. In fact, that, that phrase always makes me laugh, far be it from me, as if I would ever steal. Oh, come on. They would steal if they got a chance, just like most of us probably would. And so there's a reality here that, that they're assuming their own innocence. They, they, they think there's no way we could be wrong with this, or we could be wrong in this. Verse 10, and so the steward says, now also let it be according to your words. He who... He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack, and so he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found with Benjamin's, in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to his city. Now, here's what's interesting, is that the, the steward again he knew them youngest to oldest. This should have been a hint to what's going on. They should have been picking up on this, right? But look what happens next, verse 14. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Then Joseph said to them, What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I certainly, uh, can certainly practice divination? Now, you might be thinking, why would Joseph be practicing divination? If you know what divination is, it's basically the pagan way of prophecy. It's, it's a way of trying to hear what God might say about the future. Now, this idea of a cup, this was kind of very common in that part of the world at that time. They would get a, a cup, either a cup of water they'd pour oil into or a cup of wine they'd pour another substance into. And kind of the contrast between the two liquids, they would see different pictures or, or shapes or images, and they would think that's how they could tell what God was saying to them or what the gods were trying to reveal to them about the future. Now, what's interesting about this is that we, we can be really pretty confident that Joseph did not practice divination, that he didn't do this. And this is why, we, remember if we read back in Genesis earlier, in Genesis chapter 40 and 41, where when Joseph was in prison, he had said to Pharaoh's butler and baker, he said, do not interpretations belong to God, please tell me, you know, the dreams. And then also he said to Pharaoh in verse, uh, chapter 41, of verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 41, verse 16, he had said to Pharaoh, uh, is it not, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace, talking about the interpretation of dreams. And so when, when Joseph was in the situation before, he had complete confidence that God would tell him the future through these dreams. So we're pretty confident he's not practicing divination. But here's what he's doing. He's again hinting at these guys through this peg in disguise Something that, that talks about God's knowledge of the future, that God knows what's going to happen. Don't forget how this whole process with Joseph and his brothers started. It started with Joseph receiving dreams from God where his brothers and even his mother and father would bow down before him. That they'd all bow down before him. And when he told that dream, they got angry. And so he's, in a sense, hinting at them about this idea that, hey, there's someone who knows the future and it's not you. And he can predict the future, and it's not you. So even in this sort of trap, he's wanting to hint something to them to get, help them to think about the, 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 the behavior that they've had in the past. Now, this brings us to the first reason or first incident when we know reconciliation becomes real. It becomes real when we're humbled by our circumstances. You see, what's going on with these guys is, is, is that Joseph is testing them to humble them, but God's also wanting to humble them. God's also wanting to bring them in a place where they're 
broken down by their circumstances. And I find it interesting that the way God's humbling them is not for them to just be exposed in their mistake, but to, in a sense, treat them unjustly and see what comes out of their hearts. This often is how God wants to humble us. He lets us go through unjust situations to to expose something in us, to kind of squeeze us a bit and see what comes out. He's wanting to humble us during circumstances. See, this is one of the things that happens before anybody gets reconciled with God. God almost always lets them go through some sort of circumstance that brings them down a notch or two. Because you know what happens? Keeps us from drawing near to God? Our pride. Every single one of us, it's our pride. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but what does He do? He gives grace to the humble. So in wanting to give grace to us, what does He need to do to us? Humble us. See, now God's plan is this. God's plan, plan A is you humble yourself. But because we're so slow to do that, plan B is He will humble you. (laughs) He'll put you in a humbling circumstance so you have to go, oh man, what's going on now? What's happened to me? Now, it's interesting what happens. Here they are, they're in this humbling circumstance. And look at the way they respond. It says in verse 16 that Judah said, when he's, when when he's cornered with this sin, Judah said, what shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he who also with whom the cup was found. Isn't that interesting? Interesting one that he separates we, as in the brothers, from Benjamin, the one whom it's found. We who were guilty to send you into slavery or Joseph into slavery in the first place. What's really interesting to me about this is that Judah recognizes that God's hand is in the situation. Judah doesn't see this as, I've been treated unjustly. Judah sees this as, God's trying to get our attention. God's wanting to bring our sin to the surface, even putting us in unjust circumstances. Sometimes what we, we, we're doing when we're fighting for justice, we want justice, is we're not realizing that what God has to do is expose our injustice, sometimes through unjust things happening to us before we can even understand justice. This is what God's doing here. He's wanting to bring them to a place where, well, here's what's happening with Judah. He stops justifying himself. That's the second thing God does. When reconciliation is going to become real, well, one, it's going to happen when we're humbled by our circumstance, but two, it's going to happen when we stop justifying ourselves. We just, you know what, God, you're in the situation. And you know what, if you need to expose me, you need to expose me. Whatever has to happen, has to happen. It's interesting because this is the whole reason God gave His law, the Ten Commandments. Check this out. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, and this is why, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is how the law of God is supposed to work. God gives us His Ten Commandments, these good commands He gives to us, and we look at those commandments and what we usually do is we go, yeah, there's some good stuff there, and we pick out the ones that we like best, usually the ones that we think we're keeping. And then we ignore the ones or try to devalue the ones that we don't keep. Because that's the funny thing about the law is there's always going to be at least one of those things you're not keeping. One of the Ten Commandments that you're breaking. And James tells us if you've broken one, you've broken the whole thing. 
This is what the law of God does. It's to show us that we've got to stop making excuses for ourselves. This is what it means to humble ourselves. Peter tells us this in, in 1 Peter 5, 6, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Interesting because when Peter writes this, remember when Adam was teaching us through this, Peter writes this to a group of people who are being highly persecuted, being treated unjustly, and wants his advice, humble yourself under that. See that as God's hand bringing you, uh, teaching you humility so He can give you more grace. He can do more stuff. So we don't like this. We don't like this because we have this mindset that says, I deserve better. I should be treated better than this. My life should be easier than it is now. And we're so like that because we're so consumed with ourselves and also, listen, we're so consumed with the here and now, we forget, you know what God's wanting to do is work in us something that's eternal. God's wanting to work in us something that's much grander than anything that we can experience right now. So Judah's recognizing God's hand in this. God's doing something here. In verse 17, he says, but he said, far be it from me that, uh, I'm sorry, he didn't say, Joseph is saying to him, far be it from me that I should do so, the man in, whom, in whose hand uh, the cup was found, he shall be my slave, and you uh, go up in peace to your father. And then Judah came near to Joseph. Remember, he doesn't know it's, this is Joseph. He came near to Joseph, and he said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my hearing, and do not let your burn against your, your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. So here's what's going on, okay? Judah knows God's hand in this. He doesn't even try to defend himself or his brothers. He sees God's trying to expose him. And then what happens when, when Joseph, this ruler of Egypt, says, hey, you know what? I'm not going to bust you all for this. Um, you know what? I'm going to just take Benjamin. Judah's like, oh no, this can't happen. This can't happen. You can't take, you can't take Benjamin. Now, I'm not going to read to you guys uh, basic verse, basically verses uh, uh, 19 through 32. And the reason I'm not going to read to you those things is because it'll take too much time. I'm just going to sum up. Basically, it's all almost verbatim, the same words that we've seen happening in the previous chapters. And basically, what, what Judah's doing is just recanting the entire story to Joseph and just saying, man, I, I don't want to see my father in further pain. Benjamin's his favorite son. If I, don't, if I leave him here... It's, it's going to be horrible. My father's going to die. He's going to die from the stress and the pain. I can't do that to him. Now, this is not Judah making excuses. This is Judah pouring out his heart before this ruler. This is Judah pouring out his heart before this authority, this one he knows has his life in his hands. He's just saying, look, I, I'm not making excuses. I just got to say, this is how serious the situation is. And I got to tell you, this reminds me of exactly how we're supposed to be before God. The Bible says in Psalm chapter 62, verse 8, that we are to trust in God at all times. People, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Interesting, too, because we just read 1 Peter 5, 6, right? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you due time. Here's what 5, 7 says. Casting all your cares on Him because He cares for you. You see, this is what we get this great picture of. What's happening is Judah, he has no excuses. All he can do is pour out his heart and say, this is how desperate my situation is. I don't want my father to be in further pain. Please, please, let there be another way. Now look at verse 33. Now therefore, 
he says, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Do you see what he's saying? Judah's saying, I want to be his substitute. Now, who does that make you think about? You know, Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, he said, greater love has no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. This whole reality about Jesus being our substitute is what we see this picture of in Judah. Here's Judah. And it's amazing because remember, Judah was the guy who wanted to see him sold into slavery in the first place. And we see God's been humbling him. Here's Judah. He's really humbled by his circumstances. He's at a place where he can't justify himself anymore. All he knows is this is a serious situation, and unless there's a substitute, the beloved son's going to die. Unless there's a substitute, my father's going to be in pain. Now again, we're talking about right now the second point of reconciliation becomes real when we stop justifying ourselves. I want you to listen to what the Bible says about justification or justifying ourselves before God. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. Paul's explaining to us this radical truth about being justified through faith or right with God through faith. And he says, Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you understand what Paul's saying there? Paul's saying that really in a real sense, God had for in history, in a sense, kind of overlooked people's sins. He had kind of, in a very real sense, had said, you know what, I'm going to hold back on judging the world that's sinful until the right time comes. And when the right time comes, I'm going to send my son, and he's going to be a propitiation, the one who satisfies wrath. And what's going to happen is, I'm going to do this, and in doing this, I'm going to be able to be just and the justifier. Now, here's what he means by this. To justify somebody is to render them innocent. It's to render them innocent. Now, we love the idea of being declared innocent, but we don't like the idea of a guilty person being declared innocent, do we? So we think about this. Think about this scenario. Think about somebody you really care for. Maybe a young person that you feel responsible towards, a child or a sibling. Imagine if that child or sibling was abused, raped, and then the, 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 the person who was guilty of the crime is caught. The evidence is obvious. It was this person who was guilty. He comes before a judge and he says, oh, judge, I blew it. I was wrong. And the judge says, yeah, it's okay. I'll let you off. Would that be a just judge? If he said, you're innocent in my eyes, he would be a justifier, but he wouldn't be just. Now, what if he looked at that man and said, you know what? You're a sick pig. You're dead. We're going to reinstitute capital punishment and you're going to die for your crime. He would be just, but he wouldn't be a justifier. Do you understand? But in God sending Jesus, listen, Jesus dies in our place so that the sin that God says needs to be judged, and he's right, our sin that needs to be judged, he judges it justly and yet can render us innocent. He can be just and the justifier. 
So pulling this back into what we see going on in Genesis, Judah recognizes there's no way we're going to get out of the situation. We are guilty. Let me be the one who takes on the guilt so that Benjamin can go free. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. He says, Father, let me be the one that takes on guilt so that they can go free. They can be rendered justified. This is why we can stop justifying ourselves. This is why we must stop justifying ourselves. Because Jesus already paid it. You see, here's how you know that this is reconciliation has taken place when you stop justifying yourself before God. Oh God, I'll try harder. I'm sorry I did that, but I've also tried to do this. And we're trying to justify ourselves before God when all we should be able to do is to stand before God and say, God, before you, I should be rendered guilty. But I know because of Jesus, I've been rendered innocent. We need to stop justifying ourselves. Can you see that when you live in such a way that you have to just keep, or you feel like you just keep justifying yourself and justifying yourself. I'll, you know, I, I, I've sinned this way, but I'll do all these things that I'll make up for it. Okay, I shouldn't look at that thing on the internet, but I'll teach Sunday school. Okay, I, I shouldn't drink so much, but you know what? I'll make sure I tithe. Oh, okay, I, I shouldn't be so uh, short-tempered and impatient with my friends or my family, but I'll make sure I evangelize. What are we trying to do? We're trying to justify ourselves. That has to stop. Because Jesus, God, did not spare his own son, Jesus, so that we could be reconciled with him, so that he could render us innocent. Do you understand? This is what God wants to bring us to. So when Judas saying this, he's really showing that, man, something pretty radical's happened in his heart. Here's the man, here's the older brother who wanted to see his brother Joseph torn to pieces and then sold him to slavery. And now he's the one saying, no, let me be the slave. Let me be in prison. Let me suffer so he can go free. So the little brother can go free. And Joseph, man, he's overwhelmed by this. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. You guys think I'm emotional. <laughs> but you know what I have to say? In this next section, especially this first half of Chapter 45, we really see Joseph pointing to Jesus. I mean, even with this emotion. You know, the shortest uh, verse in Scripture, John 11.35, is Jesus wept. And sometimes we forget because we, we emphasize so often the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God the Son. And rightly so, we forget that he was also 100% human. He was a man and experienced the entire spectrum of human emotion. He knew what it was like to suffer. He knew what it was like to rejoice. He knew what it was like to cry tears for both reasons. And here's Joseph. He's just sort of overwhelmed by what's happened. And I have to tell you, this is why I, one of the reasons I cry so much, I mean, my kids tease me all the time about how emotional I am, and you guys make fun of me as well too. I know. Don't think I don't know. I know. 
But I'll tell you, this is what I get emotional about. I get emotional about not, not just sad things. Sad things tend to make me angry. When I see injustices or things going wrong, I, I kind of get frustrated and think, I'm going to fix that. But when I see the hope of the gospel, either just in its reality or even just kind of demonstrated or, or illustrated or shadowed in a family relationship or in a story of someone's life changed, it just moves me to tears. I think, oh man, it's real, it's true. God actually can save people. People can actually be changed. There actually is hope. And I can imagine this is what Joseph is thinking. Wow, God's done it. He's changed my brothers. I'm going to be reconciled with him. It's going to happen. And he was just overwhelmed by it. Now, personally, I have a big problem with emotionalism. I have a big problem with, with being in an atmosphere, especially a church atmosphere, where people are trying to hype up the emotion. Let's say, I'll feel some, let's feel some, let's feel something. I don't like that at all. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's good. But I also have a big problem with people who think emotions are bad. <laughs> Look, you don't have to be as emotional as me. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, listen, should we not be moved by the reality of reconciliation? Jesus used emotive language all the time. It's interesting because right before he um, right before he gives the Olivet Discourse, we see him and he's, he's sort of standing before Jerusalem and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I often long to gather you as a hand gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. And you, and you get a sense as he says these words of this emotional plea, this heartfelt desire to see them brought in. That God would, God's people would be right with their God. And I see this in, 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 in Joseph. That like Jesus, he's experiencing these authentic emotions. But he's weeping aloud, and then Joseph said to his brothers, in verse 3, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The idea they were dismayed is they're, they're trembling inside. They're just like, what is going on? And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. And so they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these, uh, for these two years, the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh <coughs> and Lord to all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. <laughs> I love this. Do you see what's happening here? Joseph is exalting the sovereignty of God in the situation. He's wanting to say, listen, this is what God's done. Can you imagine if you were one of the brothers, your heart's been softened by the circumstance. God's been doing things to soften you. And you're, you're realizing, man, we were so guilty, so wrong for having Joseph, you know, sold off into slavery and, and killed. We were so wrong to do that. It was so bad. And then you see him as alive. How would you feel? 
You'd be freaked out. You'd be like, oh my goodness. And Joseph says, look, this is, God was in this. God allowed me to suffer. You chose to put me here. You chose to sold me into in slavery, but God was working a plan to save your life through it. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Check this out. We're going to actually study this section tonight uh, at our, in our Sunday evening service, Acts chapter 2, where it says, Acts 2, 23, where it says, Jesus being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken my lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. That's Peter, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Hey, God determined beforehand that Jesus would be crucified. Remember, he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. That was always God's plan. But guess what? It doesn't take away uh, your responsibility. Now, I want you to think about this for a second because tying us again, not just back into Joseph's story, but also into our own salvation. Is it amazing to think about the people who crucified Jesus, they did so because they hated him. They wanted him dead. And what does Jesus say on the cross? First thing he says on the cross, first recorded saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Yet their desire to kill this hated one is God's way of saving those who hate him. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I was talking to someone recently about a friend of theirs who had put on Facebook a rant about Easter, talking about how crazy and foolish it was to believe in the God of the Bible because, gosh, is that the best God can do to send his own son to die? Yeah. I think it's pretty cool. It works. <laughs> I think it's pretty amazing that God allows us to make choices. We're not robots. We make choices. He allows us to make choices. He allowed the Roman government to make choices. He allowed the, the people of Israel to make choices. And in their choices, he still worked things together to provide a savior for all of them. Wow. That's why Jesus could say in John chapter 10, no one takes my life. I lay it down. I raise it up again. I'm in control here. That's why he could say it to Pilate. Pilate, you think you're in control, but you have no power except it's given to you from heaven. God's in control. God's working this out. God's doing this. That is meant to comfort us, folks. That is meant to bring us comfort and assurance that this God is for us and not against us. Oh, but John, you don't know how bad I've been. You don't know how I've blasphemed God. So did the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. Oh, you don't know the kind of sick sin I've been involved in. You don't know this God who's able to save to the uttermost those who will come to him through Christ. Now he exalts the sovereignty of God in this Joseph does. And then back in verse 9 of chapter 45, he says to the, his brothers, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. 
And you shall be near uh, to me, you and your children, and your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of my glory in Egypt and all that uh, you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. You see, Joseph, he's eager to get his family into a safe place. He's saying, listen, God's in control. God's provided for your salvation. Even through your rejection and, and selling me into slavery, God's provided for your salvation, your deliverance. Bring dad back. Bring the whole family back. Nothing's going to be lost. Come here. Abide in this safe place. <coughs> abide in this safe place. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will and it shall be done for you. You'll bear much fruit. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 91. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Same imagery that Jesus uses when he calls Jerusalem. And I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Do you see what's happening here? Joseph is basically saying, listen, God's used me to provide for your deliverance. Just come and abide with me and you'll be fine. He's eager to have them close. And this is not just about them, you know, not having to die of starvation. This is about him wanting a relationship. Look what it says in verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Man. Can you imagine going up to the person who wanted you dead and sold you into slavery and just holding them and hugging them and weeping on them? Wow. Joseph embraces his brothers in love. Now, here, this brings us, all this whole section brings us to the third thing. When do we know reconciliation becomes real? Listen, when the son reveals himself. When Joseph revealed himself as their brother, as the, the beloved son of the father, when Joseph reveals himself, that's when the new reconciliation could take place. Let me ask you a very serious question. Do you see Jesus as he really is? Because to be reconciled with God, you have to see Jesus as he really is. Do you see him as the beloved son? Do you see him as the one who, though he was God, became man, experiencing all that we experience as people? Do you see him as the one who demonstrates the very sovereignty of God that he would suffer at the hands of man to provide salvation for you and for me? Do you see him, listen, as the one who's eager to have you abide in him to be safe from here in all eternity? Do you see him as the one who wants to embrace you in love, who wants to have a real relationship with you? Because when you see the son like that, that's when you know reconciliation has taken place. God's not interested in your religious action, man. It doesn't mean anything to him. It doesn't help anything. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help him. In a very real sense, it's just us trying to justify ourselves before God. And as we heard already, right? We need to stop justifying ourselves and just say, God, only because of Jesus can I be justified. 
When we see Jesus the way we're supposed to see him, just like when Joseph's brothers saw Joseph the way they were supposed to see him, that's when reconciliation can take place. We're almost done. Verse 16. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. And so it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of, of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. And do not be concerned about your goods. For the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now, we've talked so far about that we know reconciliation is real when we become humbled by our circumstances, when we stop justifying ourselves, and when the Son reveals Himself to us. But also, listen, here's the fourth thing, fourth and final thing. This is when we know reconciliation has become real. When we live under the Son's rule. You see, here's Pharaoh saying, yeah, this is my job to you. This is my desire to you. I want you to come in. And you're going to have the very best of the land. Interesting. This is actually prophetic. Because Joseph said they're going to be in Goshen. They do go back to Goshen. And remember earlier on, God had said to, had said to Abraham, what's going to happen is your ancestors are going to go into a foreign land. And they're going to be there for 400 years. And God's going to sustain them. And you know what happened after that 400 years? If you were to go ahead in the biblical chronology, you would see in the book of Exodus... That after 400 years as being, at the end, being slaves in Egypt, God sends Deliverer and Moses, frees them from that slavery, and when they leave, you know what they do? They plunder the Egyptians. They leave with all the wealth of the Egyptians. God provides that for them. So this is very even prophetic. But it's interesting that even, even here, Pharaoh is simply confirming what Joseph said he already wanted to happen. Now, we're not going to get into this today because it would be a whole other study. But, you know, Romans chapter 13 tells us that even secular governments ultimately give account to God and are his ministers for good. That's how sovereign your God is. It's amazing how freaked out we get about election time. Hey, if you're eligible to vote, you should vote. It's a good thing. But you know what? At the end of the day, I vote for Jesus because he already rules. I wish I could put a box in the ballot thing. Jesus, just take it off. He already rules. Pharaoh is just confirming what he wants to have happen, what Joseph wanted to have happen anyway. Look what happens next, quickly. Verse 21. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for the journey. He gave uh, to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the goods, good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, breads, and food for the father, for his father, for the journey. And so he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, listen, see that you don't become troubled along the way. I think the ESV version says, see that you don't quarrel along the way, which is probably a better way to say it. That's interesting because he, here you have this picture of Joseph saying, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm distributing to you gifts and I'm exhorting you, don't quarrel on your way to kind of bring people into this place of abiding. I'm sending you gifts. Make sure you don't quarrel. Use those gifts to bring people in to the place where they need to abide. Is that registering with anybody? Isn't this what God does with us? 
sends gifts of the Spirit to us that we might use those things to bring people into his kingdom to abide? Now, what about the quarreling part? Well, look what Paul says about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. But the one and same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as what? He wills. Now, you can imagine Joseph's going, look, I know you guys have a tendency to get jealous and to argue, so please don't do this because I just gave more to Benjamin than you, or I gave a lot more to Dad, even though he was pretty much faithless the whole time. I, I have the, the, the authority to do this. I gave the gifts that I want to give to. I love this because, again, we're talking about this fourth point of when we live under the Son's rule, that's when we know we're reconciled. And part of that means knowing, you know, God's in control even over the governing authorities. You know what else? God's in control how he wants to use what people, how he wants to do it. What gifts he gives to people, how he wants to use them. God's in control of that. So let's not fight about it. I'm not talking about debates that we have about bad doctrine or good doctrine. We need to have those. I'm talking about, let's not worry about if some person has that position and some person has that position. All this is getting in the way of just bringing people to a place where they need to abide. So they went down, they went out of Egypt, verse 25. They came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. He is the governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. Now, some of your versions might say he fainted. The, a better way to say this is Jacob became numb. It's part of this idea that he just was like, I, I, I didn't hear that. Have you ever talked to somebody about the Lord and said to them, you know, the Lord loves you, and they kind of look at you like, you know, that kind of puppy look, like, huh? It's just, it doesn't register, you know what I'm talking about? Because they don't believe. You, you can say some simple, the simplest truth to people, and they'll go, oh, I don't get it. God loves me, uh, I don't get it. Three words, don't get it. <laughs> and they just kind of, that's kind of what's happening. It's happening because they don't believe. Jacob's like, this is too good to be true. This is uh, unbelievable. And so what happens? So, verse 27, but they told them, notice, all the words which Joseph had said to them. And when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived and then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. You see what's happening here? As these guys are getting ready to come back and, and to live under the son's rule, under their, Jacob even going to live under his son, uh, <coughs> Joseph's rule, he has to learn to believe. He has to be convinced by the evidence. Sometimes people wonder or ask me, why do you teach through the Bible verse by verse? What's the, what's the deal with that? Is that just something you've inherited? I mean, why do you do it that way? And, and, there, and there's a very good reason. And, and one of the reasons is kind of what we see, in a sense, exemplified here. The more you know of the words of the Son, the more you see the words of God, the more faith your faith is going to develop. That's what the Bible says. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. So we want you to hear more and more of God's word because we know that's how your faith is going to build. And as your faith builds, you're going to be able to trust God. You're going to be able to relate to God. You're going to be able to grow in God. That's why we want to tell the whole story, not just, hey, he's alive. We want to tell the whole story. But also, listen, we want to give you the evidence. Do you know this is why we do our Sunday night service? 
We're doing our synodic service, and, and, and we're trying to deal with this in such a way that as we're teaching through the book of Acts, only teaching for like a half an hour, and then having to open the questions, we want to show this reality. That as Joe was praying earlier, just thanking God that this, our faith is rooted in fact. We're not asking you, we're not calling any of you to have blind faith. We're calling one another to have faith in fact, in the God who pierced history. Joseph's brothers were not asking their father to believe just some strange myth. They're saying, look, check it out. Here's exactly what he said. Doesn't that ring true? Doesn't that make sense? And guess what else? These are the cards from Egypt. Look, you can see evidence. We're actually there. We're actually come back. It's actually good for us to go back. Evidence. Why? So Jacob could believe. You see, we know... Real reconciliation has become real to us when we want to live under the sun's rule and bring everyone with us that we can.